Oh, man. Okay. That was great. Uh, it's so good to worship together. It's so good to be with the family of God and sing his praises. Um, for everybody at home watching online, um, and we really miss you and we love you, and we're just glad that you can watch online. So, you know, do your thing online. Hit the like. Um, if you haven't shared yet, share. Leave us a comment. Tell us how you're doing. Um, it's just great to be in the family of the God, isn't it? Great to worship. So let's keep it up. Let's keep worshiping, right? Let's keep worshiping through the preaching of the word. Preaching isn't a solitary sport. Uh, it's not time to just sit back and spectate. You're not the spectators here. Um, it's not a concert, and you're not, uh, you're not concert goers that are sitting down to uh, attend something, uh, right? This is worship. Preaching the word of God is worship that the body of God does together. Sorry. <clears throat> As the preacher opens up the word, the body seeks to understand, accept, and treasure that word. Amongst other things, that should include praying God would consume the preacher, that, uh, that, uh, that God would send power and faith to accompany the preaching of his word. Um, it should include all the hearers um, praying and taking that word and preaching it to your own soul. Right? <laughs> um, I'm a little shaky. I'm like really pumped for this. I'm excited for this message. <laughs> um, so tonight's text, um, and likewise tonight's sermon, has a specific goal in mind. And that goal is to embolden you. All right? So if I can't, with my words, bring that across, that's, that's the goal, that's the aim of this message. That God would want his believers, his children, to be emboldened. To not have drooping arms and weak knees. But to be empowered. To fill you with courage. To face, life, to face life's battles. To calm your trembling heart and fear it with cheerful expectation of the future. It is to find in Jesus a mighty and spectacular and humble and brave Savior. A Savior who would go to any lengths, would pay any price, would face any giant in order to set his people free. Free from sin. Free from its pain. From its binding constrictions. Uh, free from the fear of death. So are you ready? Yes. <laughs> are you ready to find boldness from the word of God? Yes. Are you ready to go to Jesus and receive from him courage and strength to fight and take the victory? Yes. Okay, good. Listen to the words of God from Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. All right. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's you, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Praise God. 
Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. This first part of verse 14 matches up with uh, the first part of verse 17, and it kind of goes like that, like one, two, three, and then it's going to repeat itself sort of one, two, three again. And in that second part, that other parallel verse in verse uh, 17 says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. That Jesus, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, through whom all things were made, as the creed says, that he would share in your same nature, to be subject to the same limitations, constrictions, to have this limiting body, to suffer pain, to change, to grow, to fall ill, to feel betrayal, to feel hunger, to be exhausted and and lay down to sleep, to be confronted with the unknown, to grow, to be spat on, to be killed. How in the world could that be? It doesn't make sense, and it's an incredible mystery. But to say that Jesus wasn't a man, but only put on human form like an overcoat to cover his divine nature for a time being, is to strip Jesus of the human nature that he stooped down at a great cost to inhabit. And more, more so, to do that is to strip yourself of the forgiveness of sins and hand yourself over completely defenseless to your accuser. But there's another question, not how, but, but another question that, that has a more immediate and, and liberating impact, and that's why. Why would he do such a thing? The text, it explains why like this. That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He took on your nature so that he could die. There is no dying without taking on your nature. But why? Why is it necessary for the devil to be vanquished through death and, and through, through death of a man? Surely, if the devil could have been destroyed by any other means, the Almighty would not have subjected himself to such shame and ridicule as taking on the nature of a lowly creature to suffer and die by the hands of evil men. Well, the parallel verse to this one sheds more light on that matter. It says that so that or or that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. This is a word that means to appease wrath. So there's sort of two, two examples. One's silly and one's very serious. For example... On Monday, imagine that a certain man took to work a couple pieces of cake, which he planned to savor little by little on his morning breaks with a cup of coffee over the course of the week. Now, can you imagine the anger I felt? I mean, not I, but the unnamed man felt when he found that one of his co-workers had helped himself without asking to his cake and only left a bit of crumbs in an empty container. Can you imagine the anger that that man felt? (laughs) The injustice of it. 
the righteous anger. Can you imagine? Now, now when the coworker was confronted, he apologized and promised to go and buy the exact same cake, except, of course, whole and unblemished, and repay the man. Well, such news is very well received, and when the cake is replaced, the man's anger will also be replaced, replaced with a great big smile. Um, when the coworker will do that, he'll be making propitiation. He'll be a pre, a, a appeasing wrath. Okay, but now imagine something more detestable. Imagine a woman comes home to find that her husband of many years, the father of her children, has betrayed her love, has defiled their covenant by fooling around with a younger woman. Now, if that man were to offer his aggrieved wife a cake in apology, what would you say are the odds of her wrath being appeased? Probably somewhere around zero, right? The chances are zero. The wicked man could never make propitiation for his fornication with a cake. If anything, it would just add more insult to the injury. And all the women are out there saying amen, right? You see, the payment, the peace offering must be proportionate to the crime. Without a proper propitiation, the wrath remains. Or it grows. And that is the state that man has gotten himself into. You have stirred up God's fury by tolerating false gods in your community. By singing his praises on Sunday and on Monday telling filthy jokes. By desiring another man's wife. By suppressing the truth of your own sins. While exposing and even finding comfort in the sins of your neighbor. By abandoning your brother's in order to pursue after the riches of the world. By remaining silent when your fellow man kills his children and and calls it good. Judge for yourselves. Is it not right for the Lord to look on this and hate what he sees? But because of God's great love. Because he cares for man in such a Special, such a unique, such an extreme and intense way. He came down to make that propitiation himself. To soak up, to take on a body and in that body soak up the wrath of God. In sharing in your flesh and blood and being crushed for you, he did something so grand, so unthinkable, so as to appease the Father's wrath. And that's what this text is getting at. That's what it's talking about. But you ask, why? Why why did it have to be this way? Why could you not be forgiven? Why why could God's wrath not be quenched in some other way through, through some other sacrifice? Why could the blood of all those bulls and goats not forgive sins? Because it's the blood of bulls and goats and not the blood of man. That's a raw deal. That's unequal scales. That's a counterfeit offer. That's, that's paying with an IOU. You might appease someone for a time, but the, but the price hasn't been paid. It's, it's a statement that confirms, yes, I owe you. But I can't, or I won't, 
Or I'm just too terrified to pay the price. To settle my account. This is really getting at the heart of the matter. It says that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now this is, this is akin to all those, those hero stories where there's the good guy and there's his evil enemy. And in order to inflict the greatest amount of pain on the good guy, the bad guy takes the hero's bride-to-be hostage, right? You see, Satan is attacking you. It's true, but not so much because he hates you. And has a beef with you. It's because he hates your maker. Who chose to love you in such a special way. So you end up with a scenario where the evil one's standing. Holding a gun to the girl's head. And you have the hero standing opposite. And a choice is presented. Vanquish the foe. Or save the girl. And it's that intense situation, right? (laughs) But the story of the Bible is vanquishing the foe. And getting the girl. Right? It's that that sharpshooting hero that shoots the pistol out of the hand of the villain, stripping him of his power of death and saving the girl in one fell swoop. It's part of that all-time greatest story. God's story. So, it's important now that you understand what that metaphorical pistol is, okay? That, That your hero shot out of the hand of your oppressor. What is the power of death that the devil wields? What causes man to fear death? How does that fear bind him and keep him from living a free, a happy, a holy life? Well, to answer these questions, start with death. What is death? Death is the doorway. Death is the doorway through which you enter into the presence of God. Death is the doorway through which you enter into the presence of God and through which every man must pass. Now, entering into the presence of the Almighty will plunge you into one of two states. One of inexpressible joy, of ecstasy, of bliss, of fulfillment, or one of utter terror. Shaking hands, trembling feet. One of those states is the fulfillment and consummation of your deepest desires and delights. It is a state in which you could not conceive of anything better. Think of that long-awaited honeymoon of your dreams. At last united in marital bliss with the love of your life. The constraints... The frustrations are finally behind you, and now you're free, free to completely enjoy each other. And that's just a picture, a picture which captures but a drop of the true and glorious reality awaiting the bride of Christ, the church from whom, for whom he gave himself. Now the other state is the fulfillment and consummation of your deepest fears, of your deepest anxieties. It's a state in which you will fear for your life 
and tremble knowing that it's too late, that all is lost. The control and safety you thought you had is now revealed to be what it always was, a thinly veiled lie. Think of strolling about downtown when suddenly and nightmarishly you're overtaken by an angry and uncontrollable mob. All restraint has been removed. There is no one to come to your rescue. There's no police. There's no law. There's no common decency to protect you. In a moment, your plans for next week, your promising promotion at work, your friends, family, your savings account, your diplomas, they vanished in a puff of smoke. They mean nothing to you anymore. You're being beaten and kicked and stripped of your clothing. Will you make it out alive? You know you won't. And you just hope that it ends soon. And that's just a picture. A picture which captures but a drop of the true and terrifying reality awaiting those who cling to their sins. And that's exactly what makes the difference between those two states. What determines the sort of country that the door of death will open up to you? Your sins. Your sins. This is the power of death that Satan wields. His name is the accuser. He may have power to inflict pain and suffering upon you for a time. He may be granted the power to spread disease and destruction. He may lie and try to deceive you. He may even try to blind or numb you with riches or fame or respect. But he may never damn you. He may never condemn you. He is not the ruler of hell. That is not within his power. He is not the judge. He cannot separate you from God. The one true weapon he does wield is your unforgiven sin. He is the accuser. He does not fool or convince God of lies. The Father, no. He is the true, wise, just judge. And he cannot be deceived. No, you have no fear of being charged and convicted of false charges. Satan has but one truly lethal weapon, the long list of charges against you, of which you are actually guilty. And this is precisely why the natural state of man is to live in fear of death. The fear of death is not merely the fear of a painful death. It's the fear of the pain of facing the living God with blood on your hands. Men... Man fears meeting his maker because he knows that the long list of charges against him are true. He knows that, yes, he's currently alive and walking about, but death is after him. He's a marked man. This is what the Holy Scriptures call being dead in your trespasses. And men are enslaved by this fear of death and judgment. It controls their lives. It causes people to do all sorts of stupid things in order to just take their focus away from or, or, or to prolong the inevitable. You can see this in those consuming, lifelong professional goals that some people have. And they're wrapped up in their work. Their eyes are always on the next task, the next stage of development, the next promotion. Work is their life. Everything else and everyone else is sitting in the back seat. Or you have people that through fear... Do the irrational and they try with all their might to fend off death through 
crazy diets and workout regimes or, or through stockpiling gold and silver and munitions and, and non-perishable foods in vast quantities. Maybe if they think they eat non-perishable foods that they won't perish. <laughs> um, you have people who, who fear leaving their home. It's, the, it's that fear that locks them up inside, away from anything or anyone dangerous. And you have people who are bound by fear of death, by, by filling every waking moment with noise. Just more and more noise. These time-wasting games on your phone, TV shows, the movies, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, news stories, podcasts, blogs. It's like, ah! Oh. It's like, Socially acceptable, mind-numbing, life-numbing drugs. It's just anything to keep your focus away from death or for what, for what really awaits us when we die. It's all about taking your mind away from reality, from anything that really matters, anything that's, that's truly lovely or truly lasting. It's enslavement. And so much of what people do from, from the goals you set, your hobbies, the activities you engage in, the way you fill your time, the relationships you build, the habits you form, the addictions you latch on to, the medications you take, I mean, mostly, to one degree or another, consciously or subconsciously, these are coping mechanisms. Do you see how the fear of death and judgment keeps you from abundant life? By having you cling with all your might to this momentary life? And doing everything within your power to avoid the unavoidable? Like it's going to work or something? It keeps you from freedom, from happiness, by keeping you focused on these fleeting fancies. Lest Lest you contemplate your true state. Feel your great burden and then turn and cry out to the great Savior. Sooner or later, it's going to be time to pay up. You can continue. You can't continue. You can't continue to endlessly kick the can further down the road. A day of reckoning is coming. And you know inherently, every man knows deep down in his bones that wickedness will not cannot go unpunished. And as long as it does go unpunished, the fear of death, the the day of reckoning, holds men in bondage. There is no creature hidden from the sight of God. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's a reason why all of you are clothed here tonight. Is everyone clothed? There's a reason for that. There's a great gospel message in clothing, and it pertains to God covering your sins. And that's why it's such a frightening idea for people to be naked. That's that's the stuff of nightmares, right? You wake up, and you're naked in front of an audience. It's terrifying. Because it gives you a picture. It's a representation of your sins, uncovered and unforgiven. Oh, what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, at the root of this, you have men rebelling. You have sin. 
You have men standing up and fighting against their maker. This is the power of Satan against you. Your sins. Your ugly, vile sins. And he has no other meaningful weapon against you. No, no other power to use against you. So again, you have men rebelling. As a result of that, you have God's wrath on men. As a result of that, you have men fearing death and judgment for their sins. And as a result of that, you have men throughout their entire lives engaging in destructive habits of distraction and denial. And these destructive habits are what bind and enslave and restrict men from living freely. From living freely and enjoying life with their creator. In obedience, in love. This is why, in order to appease the wrath of God that was on your head, and free you from the bondage of fear, and wipe your sins away, and make you clean and presentable to God, and bring you back into peace and union with the Father, and call you His beloved, in order to complete that mission, it was fitting for Jesus to take on the form of man, to share in the nature, and endure your punishment. This is how Jesus answers your great need. Christ offered himself up to be crushed, to endure the punishment for your sins. In doing so, Jesus defanged the devil. He disarmed the deceiver by covering all your sins. As it's written, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. That is that long list of charges. It's been wiped out. It was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over it's incredible good news. He said, it says that he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But he was the one nailed to the cross, wasn't he? Is that what it means when it says, he who knew no sin became sin? To soak up that wrath? To write those sins on himself? And to be crushed? And in doing so, he made a public spectacle of your enemy. This means that if you're in Jesus, if you lean fully on him and have, have been united to him in that trust, the wrath over your sins has been appeased. In his death, you died. And in his resurrection, you were raised and will live forevermore, praise God. He soaked it all up. For those who love Jesus, not a drop of wrath remains. He drank the cup of God's anger to the dregs. Satan no longer has any legitimate grounds to accuse you before God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Satan's ultimate weapon against us is our own sin. If the death of Jesus takes it away, the chief weapon of the devil is taken out of his hand. He may roar all he likes, but he may not separate you from God. And he may not use death to frighten you anymore. 
for the children of God, death is the doorway through which you gladly pass into the glorious land of the king. And there he awaits your arrival with open arms. And this is, this is not hyperbole. I long for that day. Y'all sent my, my family and I to Ukraine a number of years ago to minister to the church there and, and to share the gospel. And you know, I, I, <laughs> the Lord saw fit uh, to put me through a horrible accident. Accident, right? <laughs> and I had one foot across the line into death. And the other one was on the line, and I was teetering for a number of days, for a couple of weeks. And, you know, like, don't, there, there's no explanation besides Jesus for, for why I didn't cross over through death into glory. And it's an incredible story, but so many people told me, wow, it's incredible how God saved you. And like, bless their hearts, like I understand where they're coming from, but that idea is totally incompatible with the gospel. For a child of God, death is nothing to be saved from. If anything, I look back on that day and so many times since, I've looked back on that time with with something of almost almost a frustration. That I was so close to being with my Jesus. I wasn't saved from good from that. I was held back. And I'm biting at the bit. It's nothing morbid. My Jesus is there on the throne and I want to be with him. I want to be done away with my sin. I want to stop fighting. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be clean. I want to be pleasing to him completely. I want to walk with him hand in hand. There's no amount of money you could pay me in exchange for going and being with my Lord. I long for that day when there'll be no more warring within me against the sin that so easily entangles, when the weight will be lifted, when I'll have rest for the church, for the bride of Christ. Death is the, is the car ride from the wedding ceremony to the honeymoon. It's the archway under which you stroll with your bridegroom into that endless life of bliss. It's not to be dreaded. It's to be embraced. There is no fear in death. Knowing that it leads to that long-awaited union of you and the lover of your soul. And you can sing with David and he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also rests in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. So all the children of God are freed from the fear of death. The shackles are sprung. Satan stands to read the list of charges against God's elect. And when he looks down, the page is empty. 
It's blank. He's been made a fool of. He stands there in the courtroom stammering. What does he do? What does he have against you? God is justified. Satan is powerless to overturn the decrees of God. And God means for that picture, he means for that picture to have an effect, an immediate and powerful effect on your lives. That's the whole idea of God letting us see a picture of what's to come, is to have an effect on your lives now, in the present. He means for the future happy ending to take away the slavery and fear of the present. If you do not need to fear the last and greatest enemy, death, then you need not fear anything now. Now some say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't the fear of death healthy? I mean, it does cause people to act uh, more carefully. It does cause people to minimize their risks. Hogwash. That's what I say, hogwash. (laughs) To act more carefully? To minimize risks? (laughs) Is that way of thinking compatible with the gospel? How, How do those two things mix? Why would you minimize risks? And how has minimizing risks helped build up the witness of the church in the culture you live in? Has acting more carefully strengthened or weakened your witness? At work, your witness at work. Think about it. You know what's risky? Loving people. Loving people is a risky business. The the more you do it, the better you do it, the riskier it is. Opening your home, opening your family to others. Yeah. Is it true that the fear of death is healthy? That it keeps you from doing stupid things and from wasting your life? Maybe in, in, in some regards, maybe. It all depends. Is spending the lion's share of your energy and resources on furthering the kingdom of God a waste? Is opening up your house to someone in need stupid? Is that a risk worth taking? How about opening up your family to children without parents of their own? Many families in this church do that. Praise God. It's a risk. It's a risk worth taking. What about about derailing your career path to go and bring the message of Jesus to a people who haven't heard? What about forgetting your personal ambition in order to focus on the needs of your fellow man? What about being honest even when it's going to cost you? What about putting aside your me time to invest in your neighbor? How about following the example of your hero and humbling yourself and laying down your life to save sinners? How foolish, how risky are these kind of choices? The world has enough people sitting safely at home, avoiding risks. What the world needs is to see that you cherish Jesus above all. That risking your health, risking your financial security, risking the world's esteem is no risk at all to you. The world needs to see that everything this life has to offer you is worth gladly giving up if it means going to be with the lover of your soul. Praise the Lord. For that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted also. Do you hear that tonight? Is the Lord speaking to you? 
Do you have ears to hear? Don't harden your heart. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham are those that put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he is mighty to come to their aid and vanquish the foe and set them free and empower them to walk in newness of life. This is the offer of a gracious and long-suffering and merciful God. He offers aid. He offers rescue to man alone, not to animals, not to the angels even. But he comes to you, lowly you, and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. How shall shall you escape the judgment of God if you neglect such a great salvation? Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Come. Come to the fountain of life. Come to the hero of heroes. Come to your Jesus. The lamb that was slain but rose again conquering death and now sits on the throne in glory and honor and power. Come. And to all that come, know this. The promise of God is that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No fear of death. No bondage. But holiness. Simple, happy holiness. Courage, freedom, freedom to risk it all, freedom to live dangerously, freedom to take part in his incorruptible life. So come and live, live boldly. Come and drink of Jesus and find power and strength to live this life in victory. Amen. Oh Lord, thank you so much. Praise and honor and glory, Lord, to your name. That you would come to us, that you would come to us and do such an amazing thing. Lord, I pray no one hearing this message thirsty would leave thirsty, but that they would come to you. I pray, Lord, that you bind them with your chains of love, that you would call out to their heart, that you would draw them to yourself that they would drink of your living water, that they would know freedom, that they would be freed from the bondage of sin, to live a holy and pleasing and happy life in you, this day, tomorrow, and every day. kids downstairs are there kids downstairs oh okay well see you on sunday what time nine o'clock eleven o'clock right both okay see you there hey we want to thank you so much for being online with us